Right now, we're going to dive right in, Philippians chapter 3, as we work through the book of Philippians here. I'm really excited about where we're going today, so let's bow. Father God, I do thank you that you've equipped the body of Christ in such diverse and wonderful ways that we can have uh, 16 folks up here today leading us in worship and doing such an excellent job that our focus now is on you. Our hearts, hopefully, are more tender to you. We're prepared to now open your book and see what it says to us. And Lord, as you know, we're opening to probably one of the most popular, if not powerful, chapters in all of the the scriptures, Philippians chapter 3, that talks about where we're going to get our identity. And Lord, whether it will be in the world around us and the things that have happened to us or whether it will be in Christ. So God, I pray that as we unpack this today, that you might speak to each of our hearts individually and even together as a church. And that, Lord, you might challenge us, draw us to you. May even this be a day of commitment for many of us. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So to get us thinking about what Philippians 3 is going to talk to us about this morning, what I want you guys to think about is the whole current white-collar crime called identity theft. I think you've all been familiar with that because it's all over the news, identity theft. It's the fastest growing white collar crime in America today, outpacing insurance fraud, property crime, health and safety violations, even drug trafficking. Identity theft is actually costing our country billions of dollars, and by most experts' estimation, it's just ramping up. And yet, check this out. Over the last five years, there have been an average of 9 to 10 million cases each year of identity theft, racking up a staggering $50 billion in stolen assets each year, of which consumers are on the hook for about $5 billion of that. And according again to the Gartner Group, who monitors this activity closely, only about 1 in 700 identity theft crimes lead to a conviction. It's a relatively simple crime. Someone or a group of someones attains personal information about you, your social security number, your address, your phone number, your birth date, even financial information like your bank account numbers and credit card information, and they use this information to pose as you as they secure utilities in your name or take out loans or buy assets with your credit card and mess with your tax status. And so it's the man who was indicted a few years back in Miami, Florida, for filing false federal tax returns in the names of 614 state prisoners, totaling more than $3 million. He filed tax returns for 614 prisoners, and he got $3 million back. That's identity theft. Or even worse, you might remember this from the news, Card Systems Incorporated had their mainframe computers hacked a few years back and found that 40 million Visa, MasterCard, Discover Card, and American Express numbers, including the three or four digit pins, had been stolen. 40 million. Or how about when ChoicePoint, a large information broker, sold more than 145,000 social security numbers to a fake company, only realizing afterward that they were going to be used for legal identity theft purposes. It's called identity theft, someone becoming you financially and then wreaking havoc on your personal life. Now, the reason that I opened up talking about that is because I want you to transition in your mind right now, if you can, between this idea of financial identity theft and now relate it on a spiritual and relational level. Because what I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, is that there's another form of identity theft that happens to Christians all the time. 
on a spiritual and relational level that makes the financial identity theft look like a walk in the park. It makes it look minor compared to what happens to Christians on a regular basis. And here's how it works. God has made you, and he loves you, and you're created in his image, and as we've seen, you're created for a purpose. He's even redeemed you. He's given you salvation in Jesus Christ as ones who are followers of his son, Jesus Christ, forgiven for all of your sin and now on the road toward increasing redemption and sanctification. And yet over time, what the Bible affirms is that it's more than possible for this God-infused identity, that you're a child of his, a creation of him, even redeemed in Jesus Christ, this identity to get stolen and taken from us to the point that we're no longer able to see our identity in Christ. I'm not suggesting that you lose your salvation. Don't hear me say that. I'm simply suggesting that it's possible for a Christian who has affirmed his or her identity as a creation of God, as one made in his image, redeemed in Jesus Christ, now on the road toward increasing righteousness to forget where he or she has come from, to lose his or her identity in Christ and start to wander away from the fold, to start to distance oneself from God, to get too wrapped up in the things of this world and the culture around you. And when that happens, it is exactly like a financial identity theft, but as now you can see, much worse because it's a kind of identity theft in which your identity as a child of God has been stolen by the world around you. And what's even more mind-blowing is that the culprits for this kind of identity theft are not the things that some of us would expect because they are normal, everyday, even good things in our lives, things that present themselves as friends, not foes. What am I talking about? Well, think about this. How about Scottsdale's emphasis on health and beauty? In many people's eyes, that's a rather benign, rather innocuous type of thing. We live in a town in which you got to dress well, in which you got to make yourself look good, even do things to your body to make yourself look better. I would argue that those things in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong, but if you overdose on those things, if those things start to become your core identity, and not as we're going to see today, your faith in Jesus Christ, if health and beauty become that which takes first place status in your soul, then your identity has been stolen. You've given it up to something that you don't want to be the main thing in your life. Or how about your relational past or your relational history? I know many people have given up their identity to things that have happened to them in the past. Or how about even your successes as we're going to see today? For many of us, our successes are the things that define us the most. It's these things, folks, that believe it or not, have become the backroom crime syndicates in stealing our identities as those redeemed in Jesus Christ. There's a spiritual and a relational identity theft going on around us all the time that we need to combat if we're ever going to get any traction in our Christian walk with Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning, ah, that balloon finally popped. <laughs> Guys, the balloon popped. You see that, Scotty? All right. We were afraid it would be really loud and that the security guards would pull their guns. And so I'm just <laughs> thankful that balloon popped. Thank you for whoever caught it back there. It was left over from VBX. And so... Uh, wow. And, and this, is the, this is the service that goes on the web, so that'll be fun. <laughs> How do you recover from that? All right. 
So I, I want us to explore this today, this idea of spiritual and relational identity theft. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Philippians in the New Testament is exactly going to help us with this, especially chapter 3. So if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 3 right now, and we're going to spend all of our time in chapter 3 this morning. And uh, as you're opening there, you're going to notice three key things that this passage tells us about our identity, three things that can do nothing but help us avoid identity theft in the most literal sense. And the first thing, as you're opening to Philippians 3, I want you to notice here is that it's going to tell us to not ultimately define ourselves by our history. Or, or to make it more personal, don't ultimately define yourself by your history. It's the first thing that Philippians is going to tell us here. So let's unpack that. And look at verses 3 to 6 and then verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul the Apostle is the writer here. And notice what he says in kind of an autobiographical way about his own life. Philippians 3, verses 3 through 6 and then 8. He says, And we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, folks, don't miss what is happening here in these power-packed words. Because looking back on his own past, Paul identifies seven key things, all rooted in his history, that he clearly says are not top-place identity markers for him. And just so that we can assimilate these into our own lives, I'm going to suggest to you that they fit neatly into three categories that you and I can relate to when it comes to our own lives, that we can apply to our own lives. So first, notice with me that he talks about his relational history. His relational history. He says there in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Four status items that form the relational history of Paul from birth to adulthood. Kind of like you have a relational history by being, say, born in Scottsdale or me in Cleveland. Or maybe you were born in Atlanta or L.A. or Iowa or wherever and have all the relationships that you have in your life. Paul the Apostle is saying from birth until now, I've had a ton of relationships. It's my relational history and it centers around these four things. I was born a Jew. And just a few days into that, I was circumcised according to the Old Testament practice to circumcise on the eighth day a Jewish male. And then he says, I was a member of the people of Israel. And even more importantly, the tribe of Benjamin, which as some of you know, though a small tribe, was a special tribe in Israel back then. It was the tribe that King Saul came from. It was the tribe that was blessed by Moses as, and I quote, beloved of the Lord. It was a tribe that Jerusalem was located in and the tribe that joined Judah in loyalty to the Davidic covenant. And then Paul sums it all up by saying, not only all that, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Paul was a true Jew through and through. This was his relational history. And notice with me, and this is going to be really important for us as we go along this morning, he's talking about it rather positively here. Did you pick up on that? 
He's going to diss his relational history in just a minute here. He's going to say, by the way, this stuff means nothing to me. But as he's laying it out to us, he wants to lay it out rather positively for us, saying that these are all my friendships, my contacts, the status that I had. I was born and raised in this. And then he's going to switch it on us and say, but it's not what defines me the most. Now, hang on to that. We're going to put it all together in just a moment. Notice that he goes on to talk about a second category that he dismisses as well as that which defines him most, his vocational history. This is interesting. This will preach to Father's Day, his vocational history. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, in effect, Paul is saying, I was so successful at my job as a religious leader that I became a Pharisee one of the top positions of leadership in the Jewish religion back then. And Paul says, I excelled so much at my job that I led the way in squashing anything that might threaten the Jewish faith, even Christianity itself. I rocked as a pastor and as a religious leader. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that his successful vocational past is not even that, is not going to ultimately define him. Something else is. And then as if all of this were not enough, moving on to a third category that we can all relate to, he mentions his personal history. That's interesting, his personal history. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He's referring to his own morality there. He's simply saying that if you looked at my personal life when it came to the faith that I professed and then living it out, all the intricacies of the law, all the intricacies of what it even meant to live under the law, the finely honed regulations for Sabbath observance and food laws and ritual cleanliness. He says, I had it all. I was perfect in my morality even back then. Don't miss this. Paul had a stellar personal past in history, one to brag about in most situations, just not when it came to what is ultimately going to define him. So add all this up, folks. He is dismissing his relational history, his vocational history, and his personal history as having any controlling interest in his present identity. That's going to be really important for you and I as we move along. But before we do that, notice that he adds in verse 8a that little phrase, everything. Did you pick up on that? Everything. Just in case he forgot anything of his past, he's saying, oh, by the way, and I count everything, in case you can think of anything else, as a loss, as we'll see, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And then in a crowning blow, a fitting cap to all of this, he even gets a little bit vulgar with his audience, which Paul rarely did. I mean, it's like shock value for first century ears. And he says there in verse 8b, and I count them as rubbish. I count them as rubbish. Focus on that little word there, rubbish. Interesting word. It's only used one time in all of the New Testament. Paul's the only one that uses it, and only here. It's the Greek word skubala, and yet it appears countless times outside of the New Testament in the first century, and it was a common word for dung. That's how the King James Version actually translates this. If you have a King James Bible, he says, I see it as dung. You get the idea, human or animal excrement, human or animal refuse. Paul is talking about the food that goes into the body and what's not utilized for the body comes out of the body. He's saying, that's how I see my personal past. It's dung, it's excrement. As some of you are saying right now, as they did back then, gross. I mean, this is in the Bible. That's like a gross analogy that he's using here. And that's exactly Paul's point. 
He's trying to say, let me shock you a little bit. I see my vocational, my relational, and my personal past as dung. It's scubula. It's stuff that will be on par with human or animal excrement. It's not going to define who I really am. Something else, or as we'll see, someone else is going to. But that stuff, it's dung. And so let's apply this now to you and me at this point. Let's think about our own lives in this light. I want you to think about your relational history. And I want you to ask yourself how much of your relational past or relational history is defining you here this morning. I I know plenty of people in in my life who are defined so much by things that have happened to them in the past, they just can't let go of them. I I know folks who have gotten married, and even though the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that when you get married, you're supposed to leave your father and mother and cleave to your new wife or husband, they really mess that thing up. Because they've had trouble leaving their father and mother. They hang on to dad and mom way too much. And now mom and dad are intimately enmeshed in this new family that God says is a new family and a new flesh and a new identity. And everything's a big mess because they failed to leave and cleave. They cleaved without leaving and now they're stuck in their relational past. You know people like that too. I I know people who got divorced years ago from a nasty, nasty relationship And yet, because it was so hurtful and painful to them, the bitterness and the anger still lives with them today, and they're unable to let go of a divorce that happened a long time ago. Their relational past identifies who they are now. Or or, or more positively, and maybe innocently, but just as serious, how about what I call the Cheers syndrome? Remember that show Cheers, where everybody became friends at the bar, and their entire relational, uh, you know, interactions all happened at the bar, you know, with Norm and Woody and all of that? I, I know people like that, even Christians, who like when I probe a little bit their life, I mean their whole life are these superficial barroom relationships that they're still hanging on to. And even though God has something much more for them in richness and relationship with himself and his kingdom, they're still clinging to norm. And I sit there and say to myself, tell me you got something more than cheers when it comes to your relational life. Why are you clinging to that? You start to get the picture here. There are plenty of ways that you and I cling to our relational history, whether good or bad, that keeps us from clinging to Christ. And this is going to be the challenge that Paul gives us, that God has something more for you and me than all of that relational stuff in the past, even as good as some of it might be. And yet before we get to that, when it further comes to what ultimately defines us, how about for some of us, and this is going to hurt for some of you, our vocational history. And you know what I'm talking about. Our business successes and or failures. Our education, our training, our positions, our status, our accomplishments, our vocations or our jobs for some of us define us most pointedly. And I just got to tell you folks, this one is huge in 21st century America. I cannot tell you how many folks I know are allowing this world and their job to define who they are. And I know this is true because when things come crashing down vocationally, they're crushed. When, when things are going great vocationally, they're flying high. And so they're being jerked around by a job this side of heaven that God says shouldn't define you at the core of who you are, that someone else should define you. We'll see his name is Jesus here in a minute. And yet we've sold our soul to business in America And that, our vocational past, we're clinging way too much to. 
I ran across a great article this week of a wonderful ministry in East LA called Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries. It was started a couple decades ago by a Jesuit priest by the name of Greg Boyle. And this guy was a priest in East LA there, and he realized that one of the greatest needs of East LA was to help gang members get out of gangs and get jobs and start to become functioning members of society. In fact, the motto of his ministry is, nothing stops a bullet like a job. That's a pretty good motto. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. And so his idea was if we can get these people, these kids out of gangs and into good jobs, then they won't need the gang anymore. They can let go of their vocational past of being a gang member. And yet as he went along and helping them find jobs, he realized that one of the key barriers to them finding jobs other than training and education and things like that, which this ministry does, but one of the most interesting barriers were the tattoos that these gang members had. Not that there's anything wrong with a tattoo, mind you, but the tattoos that these particular gang members had were gang tattoos on their neck or their forearm. And whenever an employer would see that tattoo, he'd say, uh, I'm not hiring you. And so this priest went out and started networking with a bunch of physicians saying, if you would donate your time, we'd make space available and we want to offer free tattoo removal for any of these kids that want to get jobs. It became such a wildly successful program that, get this, they now do 4,000 treatments a year for tattoo removal for gang members in East L.A., 4,000 a year, and currently there's 1,000 kids on a waiting list wanting to get their tattoo removed so that they can get a job in East L.A. It's been a wildly successful ministry. And as Robbie Zacharias cites, who uh, wrote up on this, he said, though it's a very painful procedure, much more painful than getting a tattoo put in, these kids go through it because they want to let go of their vocational past so they might move on for what God has for them next. As I read that, I got to tell you, I thought of all of you in Scottsdale, and I thought, though most of my congregation doesn't have tattoos, I mean, you can show me your arms, they're not there, though some of you do, and I think that's kind of cool, some of you don't, Uh, I still think that you can relate to this idea of tattoo, because tell me if this isn't true, there are plenty of people in Scottsdale that have figurative tattoos from their vocational past, things that we're still clinging to from our vocational past, things that have marked us from our vocational past, whether good or bad, that we fail to let go of, that we fail to see as dung, as scubala. And as a result of that, it's taking way too much attention when it comes to our identity, and we're not really clinging to the Christ, the Jesus, who vies for our attention every day. I I think we can relate to that. I think we can relate to a kid in East L.A. who needs to get a tattoo removed because we too have some things to remove from our lives if we're ever going to cling to Christ. I love how Larry Crabb says in his book Connecting, he says that the goal of faith in Christ is to attach our lives to him. We'll see that in just a second, to attach our lives to him. But what many Christians don't understand is that sometimes you have to detach your life from something else in order to attach to Jesus Christ. It's detach and then attach. By the way, the Bible's got a word for that. It's called repentance. It's called the fact that you got to turn from something else if you're going to turn to Jesus. And in in case you don't want to turn from this, you're going to be stuck here. And you're never going to be able to turn to Christ. It's part of the plan that God has for you, your, 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 your relational past, your vocational past. And then how about our personal history? 
Again, this keeps some of us from forging an identity in Christ, our personal history. You're saying, like what? Well, you've done things in this world that you're really proud of, and it's okay to be proud of them, but you're clinging to them too much. For some of you, you've had a sports track record going all the way back to high school and college, and you're so proud of that, you're still clinging to it. For some of you, you've had hobbies. Maybe it's cars or hiking or jogging or something else in which you're so good at that it's taken up way too much place in your identity. For some of you, you've had professional degrees that few people could ever earn. That vies for too much of your identity. You get the picture. For some of us, there are personal things that we have done that we're clinging to. And just like Paul, who had tons of personal things in his life you could cling to, he says, it's all done. It's scubala. I got to ask you, how do you see the things in this world, vocationally, personally, relationally? Do you see them like Paul did, as things that though they might be good and healthy second place markers in your life? Do you recognize that at times they become first place markers for you and that we dare not let that be so? And that's the trick with this, folks. I know some of you think. Some of you think right now, well, Jamie, some of the things you're mentioning are not bad things. I mean, they're good things. My relationships, my job, my success, even my hobbies. I mean, why are you picking on all of that? Listen, the reason that I'm picking on that is because I think Paul's main point here, folks, is that it's possible, as C.S. Lewis said, to allow all of these second-place status items in our lives, which are good second-place things, to take first-place status in our souls. And that the degree that we allow these second-place things, even the good ones, to have first-place status in our soul is to the degree that we've experienced identity theft. That we've allowed this world and this culture then to rob us of the experience that we can have with God, the peace, the purpose, the grace that he wants to show us, but we need to jettison these things out before we can bring him in. And Paul the Apostle is basically saying here, that when any of these things, whether it was his past relationships or his Roman citizenship or even his knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures from being a Pharisee, all good things, but when any of these things began to encroach on his core identity, he looked at them and said, back off. These are not the things that are going to define who I am. As good as they are, there's something more that's going to define me that will bring much more peace and much more purpose to my life. And if you're at all interested in this, the question should be, well, then what or who is that? And this is point two this morning, and that's simply this, that you are most defined by your faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. This is so important. It's the pinnacle of all of the book of Philippians. You are most defined, or you are to be most defined, by your faith relationship with Jesus Christ. It's unmistakable what Paul is saying here. Look at verses 2 and 3 and then verses 7 through 11 and you'll see what I mean. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then skip down to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Folks, you'd have to be absolutely dense to not realize that what Paul the Apostle is doing here is talking about his identity in Jesus Christ. He says, I glory in Christ Jesus for the sake of Christ, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him through faith in Christ, that I may know him, Christ. I mean, even if this was your first exposure to the Bible ever in your life, you'd have to at least intellectually see that Paul is saying that this guy, Jesus, is going to be him who defines me the most, right? It's inarguable. He's taking all the good second-place markers from his life, his vocational history, his relational history, his personal history, and saying some good, some bad, it's all done because it's the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. He is going to be the one who I identify with the most. He's going to be the one who gives me my most core identity. And once you get this, the only question you got to ask is, how does that get done? I mean, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. I come to church every Sunday. I go to Bible study. I serve a little bit. I give some money. I have a quiet time now and then from the daily bread, and I don't write like Paul the Apostle. So what's going on? Folks, when you look closely at Philippians 3 here, you, you, see, what I, you see what I call a progressional interplay, meaning that, that, that it's progressing throughout the chapter and interplaying with each other. There's something happening here in the thought of Paul the Apostle that I want to share with you that I believe made all the difference in his decision, and that's where we're going to get to this morning, his decision to make Jesus Christ the Lord of his life. And this progressional interplay has everything to do, give me a click here, guys, between what theologians call a positional status that Paul had as a follower of Jesus Christ, bear with me, I'll explain that in a second, and then the relational opportunity or availability that flowed out of his positional status. You say what I mean. One of the most amazing things that the Bible makes clear is that the moment that we become Christians, whether you were five years old or whether you were 35 years old, the moment that you became a Christian, the Bible says you now have a new position before God. That some things happen to you de facto just by coming to Christ that are now true about you in the way God sees you and in the way he has resourced you. So look up here on the left-hand side of the screen and notice with me just in chapter 3 of Philippians, because this stuff's all over the New Testament, but just in chapter 3 of Philippians, how Paul talks about some of the positional realities that are true for him in Christ right now and that, by the way, are true for you in Christ right now. Even if you don't feel these things, even if you haven't experienced them, they are true. First is that you're the true circumcision. He's obviously using that figuratively. He is saying that just as in the Old Testament they would circumcise males to bring them into the covenant community, you and Christ have been circumcised. You're brought into the family of God simply because you've accepted Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3, you now worship by the Spirit of God. That's powerful. You now have the Spirit of the living God living in you who gives you power, who gives you peace, who gives you a sense of his presence, who equips you, as Ephesians 1.3 says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you're primed and pumped, as we're going to see in a minute here, to know him. And then he says, you have a righteousness from God through faith. That's an interesting phrase. Theologians do not take that to mean a practical, oh, gee, I'm more righteous than my neighbor kind of righteousness. No, it's the kind of righteousness in which God, in which God now sees you as righteous, Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins were as red as scarlet, they're going to be as white as snow. It's a forgiveness phrase in which God sees you now as righteous because he sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ. 
You are now positionally forgiven and free in Christ. Verse 12 says that he has laid hold of you, which means his grip is on your life. He's never going to let go. And there's even a standard in verse 16, which you now have attained. Everything that he's been talking about up to this point. And what you simply need to see, folks, with those few examples there, is that Paul knew these things. And he knew that these is how, this is how God sees him and has resource from, resourced him. And so from this, he also knew that his life now had a radically different direction and focus, and that that focus now enabled him to know God. Pure and simple. It enabled him to know God in a way never before possible. He could now know God in an intimate, relational way like a child does his father. And that's why I say that this positional reality opens up a relational availability with God in which now you can have him be first place status in your life, him who gives you your most core identity. And this is exactly what Paul means when he says there on the right in verse 8, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Even the good things in my life, they're dung, they're scubula compared to the opportunity I have to know Christ and find my identity in him. And then verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. The good news and the bad news. The fact that you have power now, but you're also going to suffer as a follower of Christ, just like Jesus did. And so don't miss what Paul is saying here, folks, because it applies to you. He is saying that because of the position and standing that you now have as a believer in Christ, you are primed to forge an identity that can totally transcend your relational, vocational, and even your personal past. You're now ready to know Christ on such an intimate level. And maybe now these words will make sense that as Jesus said, they might kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. I love those words. Those are fighting words from Jesus. He's saying, look at the world around you and say, bring it on. You might kill the body. You might do whatever you want to me. You can't touch my soul. Why? Because my identity's not wrapped up in all of that stuff. My identity's not wrapped up in my job and my past and in my personal pursuits. My identity's wrapped up in Jesus. And that's an interior thing, and you can't take that away from me. You can do whatever you want to me, but you can't touch that. Unless, of course, as a believer in Jesus Christ, too much of your identity are wrapped up in those things. And then you're in trouble, amen? Then you're in a lot of trouble. See, that's happened to me before. I've been a Christian, I told you guys, for 30 years now this year. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. I'm 47. And I got to tell you, there's been times over the last 30 years where I've allowed way, these things we're talking about today to take way too much of an identity status in me. My relational past, my vocational pursuits, my personal stuff. And I'm telling you, I'm so vulnerable when I do that. When I do that, I am just an accident waiting to happen because when hard times hit, I'm leaning on the wrong stuff. I'm not really leaning on Jesus. And I'm just an accident waiting to happen. But the converse is also true. That if you see your life as hidden in Christ, as you see your life as one big pursuit after him to make him Lord and Savior, then those other things eventually aren't going to touch you. So the only question we have left is how do we get there, right? I mean, easier said than done. How do we begin to forge this identity that comes more from Jesus in our relationship with him than anything else? And it brings us to the third thing that Paul shares with us here, straight from the mind of God and confirmed in his own experience. And that is that you must commit yourself to Jesus Christ who defines you the most.
It only makes sense, right? If knowing Christ personally and intimately is indeed the pathway, then only a rock-solid, unwavering commitment to that goal is going to suffice as a starting point in forging an identity with him. So look at how Paul says this in unmistakable language as he wraps up this section in verses 12 through 16. These are some of my favorite words in all of Scripture. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So what do you and I do? Listen, we press on. We are not people that look behind. We're people who look forward. We are not people who get bogged down in our relational past, our vocational past, or our personal past, because we all got pasts. We are people who look forward to the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. We press on in forging our identity in him. And I don't know if you caught it, but the only thing that requires is an unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ. Once in a while, somebody will ask me what my vision is for Scottsdale Bible Church, and you know, I'll share with them our vision statement, which is so meaningful to me, and I can tell many times when I share it with people, they just find it kind of vanilla and bland, and they don't get it until I try to explain it to them. Because the vision statement of our church is this, I mean, this is all I got, folks, is that I desire us to be a community of Christ followers who are marked, who are known for being a community of unwavering faith in Jesus Christ and unconditional love for each other. That's my vision. That each of us would get to the point in our faith where we have an unwavering, rock-solid, sold-out faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about today. And then an unconditional love, a head-turning love for each other that then also loves the community this way. That's what the first century church did. That's what the church is all about. And yet easier said than done. The only way you're ever going to have that kind of faith is if you make a decision and multiple decisions since then to commit yourself to Jesus Christ as the one who is going to define you the most. That's what this day is about, is calling you to that kind of commitment, to that kind of challenge. And so here's what I want to do as we wrap up our service here this morning. I'm going to tell you one story, and then we're going to give you a chance, if you feel led today, to commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Maybe for the very first time, some of you here today who have yet to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as some of our kids did this week, or maybe it's a recommitment. You need to re-up your commitment today to Him based on where your identity is now. We're going to give you a chance to do that. Before I do that, let me tell you one story that will bring this home, and then we'll enter into our time of commitment Last Sunday night when I was heading home from the evening service, I well, actually remembered it before the evening service, but I was looking forward to getting home because it was the NBA basketball finals. And I kind of like watching NBA basketball. And, and I must confess that, that, you know, the game started before the fourth service, you know, so like all during my sermon, it was so sinful. I'm thinking about basketball as I'm preaching. And, and, and I didn't confess that to them because that would have really been a distraction. But after I'm thinking, oh, come on, Jamie, it's, it's just a basketball game. But it was an important basketball game because I'm from Cleveland, you see. And the Miami Heat, led by 
LeBron James is playing the Dallas Mavericks. And I know that it would be sinful for me to hope that Miami loses, but I've already confessed to you guys that I'm sinful. So I'm driving home and I'm just thinking, boy, would it be great to see the Miami Heat not win. And, and, and as you know, that night that happened. And the Dallas Mavericks, and I don't even like Dallas that much, don't tell anybody, but the Dallas Mavericks won. And, uh, and, and so it was the, the lesser of two evils in my mind. And so I, I, as I was watching that game, all of a sudden it hit me that I read an article about a, 10 years ago when Mark Cuban, who's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, was starting to come onto the scene. He's a very colorful individual. And how Mark Cuban had had a, 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 an interesting interaction with David Kaplan. Kaplan is the probably the most popular sportscaster in the nation. He's out of WGN in Chicago, definitely popular in Chicago, but known throughout all the nation as just being, again, a colorful sportscaster. And about 10 years ago, Kaplan was interviewing um, Mark Cuban about the Mavericks, and Kaplan was just making small talk and said on the air, he said, you know, I heard that uh, you offered somebody $50,000 if they would change their name to Dallas Maverick. And Cuban said, yes, I did. And then there was a pause, and Cuban said, and I would offer you the same. I'm looking for some free advertising, so if you would change your name to Dallas Maverick, I would pay you $50,000. And David Kaplan kind of shrugged it off and said, well, that wouldn't be enough money. And so in a very serious moment, Mark Cuban said to him, said, well, then I'll up it to $100,000. I will give you $100,000 right now if you legally change your name to Dallas Maverick for just one year. And at that moment, you could hear like a pregnant pause, and Kaplan's kind of laughing it off, playing it off, and he says, well, I'll think about it. As you can imagine, over the next few days, he got tons of emails and phone calls into WGN in which they were saying, you're crazy not to take this. It's only one year. So take the name Dallas Maverick for one year. You'll be $100,000 richer. Just do it and don't look back. And yet after all of those emails, he came out a few days later, and in a sobering moment, Kaplan said, I am not going to do that. And here was his explanation why, and I quote. He said, if I did that, I'd be saying that I'd do anything for money, and that bothers me. My name is my birthright, and I want to preserve my integrity and credibility. Interesting. My name is my birthright, and I want to preserve my integrity and credibility. And he turned down 100000 bucks for one year of a name change. When I read that years ago, I thought of the church. I thought, you know, you and I are pressured every single day to sell our name. We really are. You're, you're pressured to sell your name to your vocation, to sell your name to your past, to sell your name to your relationships, to sell your name to all these different things in culture. You know, the Bible says that your name as a follower of Jesus is written in the book of life. Did you know that? Your name's written in a book out there. And that God has your name written in it, in which he says that when you breathe your last, you're going to immediately go into his presence and into his glory. That, that's the power of your name being written in his book. And he says, don't sell your name. Don't sell your name to your past. Don't sell your name to your historical past, your relational past, your vocational past, your personal past. It's not worth it. The only one you want to give your name to is Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. I do this probably once or twice a year where I feel led that we need to have a time of re-upping our faith or a time of recommitment, or as I said earlier, for some of you who are seeking Christ here today, a time to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Troy and the band are going to come out right now and lead us in a worship song, and during that song, 
If you want to recommit your life to Christ, I mean, just lay it down before him today. Or if you're ready to receive Christ for the very, very first time, I want you to come forward here to this stage. And you can stand, you can kneel, you can sit. I'm going to be sitting up here with you. But we're going to give you a chance to come down here. Larry Crabb says that the church is the safest place on earth. I'd like to believe that. So in this safe place, we're going to give you a chance to come down here. And with me, I'm going to pray with you when the song is done. Again, either to recommit your life to Christ or to accept Christ for the very, very first time. And so if God has put it on your heart or your mind today, if he's spoken to you something through our time together today, don't miss the opportunity to make this a defining moment today, to re-up your faith in him or to accept him for the very, very first time. It will be a decision you will never regret. So let's pray right now, and then as the song is being sung, feel free to come down here and join me down here. Father, thank you for your grace that knows no bounds. Thank you for the fact that there's not one person here in this worship center today, not one who's beyond the reach of your grace. There's not one who has wandered so far that they can't come back. There's not one whose sin is so great that they can't be forgiven. That's impossible in your kingdom. And so, God, I pray that, Father, as we enter into this time of commitment, that you would receive this commitment and receive those who want to commit once again to you for the very first time receive Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And so be pleased with what is about to happen, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All I once held dear Built my life upon All this world reveres And wars to own What I once thought gained I have counted loss Spent and worthless now
there are not too many times that I could absolutely confidently say that God is 100% pleased with what is going on in his church. But I can say that now. For each of you that are down front here right now, God knows your story. He knows the condition of your heart. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he receives you. He receives you. He receives the humility that's in your heart. He receives the focus of your mind. And he forgives you and he loves you. And so whether you're receiving Christ for the very first time today, I'm going to pray with you in a second. Whether you're recommitting your life to him, I believe this is a watershed moment, not just for you, but for our church. Make no mistake to all of you, this is the strength of our church. This is the strength of the future of our church. As people submit to Christ and develop an interior walk, an interior life that says no to the world out there and yes to Jesus Christ. And this is the strength of who we are as the people of God. So let's all bow together and pray right now with these dear folks who have come down to recommit their lives to Christ and to receive him. Father God, I thank you that you make so very clear in your word that you are in the habit of receiving prodigals back, that you can forgive seven times 70, that your grace knows no bounds. I love how Philip Yancey says it. Grace is like water. It flows to the deepest parts. And Lord, it's true. And so God, I pray that as these folks are down here right now doing serious business with you, recommitting their lives to you, or some of them, Lord, for the very first time, accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, that, God, you would give them initially that assurance that they are yours and you are theirs and that you receive them today as ones beloved of you. God, for those who are down here to receive Christ for the very first time, they recognize that their life up to this point has been their own, that, Father God, they've done their own thing, they've gone their own way, and that yet, Lord, Jesus is the one who can forgive of sin. Jesus is the one who can define them the most. Jesus is the one who died so that they might have a secured place in heaven forgiven for all of eternity. God, I pray that as they receive Christ today, you might give them that joy, that assurance that only you can give, that they've crossed over from death to life, from darkness into light, and that their life will never be the same. Father, for those who are recommitting their life here today, Lord, you know each of their stories of how easy it is to wander, how easy it is to get lax in our commitment and that there's times where we need to re-up. And so today, Lord, each person here down here does that. As they bend knees before you, as they shed tears before you, Lord, make those tears tears of joy. Make those bent knees knees of submission in which their love for you grows and grows and grows. And Lord, give them that initial assurance now that you are God of incredible grace and that you love them. And Lord, may this be a day, a defining moment for everybody down here. Lord, may this be a day that they don't forget, a day that they drew a line in the sand and said, no more, I follow Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for times of commitment like this. May the rest of us show our support with our prayers, our love, our grace. And Lord, I can't wait to see what you do as a result of this time now. I pray these things only and always in the matchless and majestic name of Jesus Christ. And we all say together,